The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm Tobias. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Christ the King. And uh, we are in the second week of our Summer Psalm series. And so uh, we're going to be continuing with the Psalms. And we're going to be looking this morning, um, as Bob said, Psalm 11, which is another Psalm of David. So I invite you to uh, open up your copy of God's Word and uh, encourage you to give your careful attention to the reading of his holy and infallible word. Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Well, friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his blessing on it. Almighty God, we bow before you, maker of heaven and earth. We bow before the creator of the universe who is enthroned in heaven, whose foundations cannot be shaken. And Lord, we thank you that you welcome us into your presence. Oh, Father, we ask this morning that you will unclog our ears, that you will stay distractions and that you by your spirit will help us to hear and to see what you would have us hear and see in this psalm thank you lord for the faithfulness of david thank you for his modeling of what a faithful response should be to when we see dangers all around us May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. The end of verse 3, Psalm, uh, David ends this psalm this way. He says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is the question confronting David in this psalm. And it's a fundamental question. And it's not fundamental just for David in his own day, but it's fundamental for you and for me. You see, I think all of us have a deep and driving desire uh, 
for security. To know that the things that should not fall will not fall, both in our personal lives and in the broader society in which we live. And yet I know that many of you in this sanctuary this morning are dealing with feelings of insecurity. You're experiencing the pain of sustained marital conflict, the frustrations of failing bodies, the pain of wayward children, and the seeming hopelessness of job loss. I know, too, that many of you in this room are following the news intently, noting the drastic changes taking place in our society, and you're deeply concerned about the challenges we're facing. Challenges, for example, to a biblical sexual ethic and what it means for us to be made male and female in the very image of God. Challenges which seem to be coming relentlessly and from all directions. And with all of these struggles and challenges and many others I could have mentioned, it wouldn't surprise me if some of you were sitting there thinking that the very foundations of your own lives were being shaken and in danger of crumbling. And so the question really does come to us just as much as it came to David. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, last week, Penny preached on Psalm 121, which, we, which begins, I will lift my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? And perhaps as you recalled his message and you listened to this psalm this morning, uh, you noted the similarity between them. They both use mountain imagery. And they both have a loud ring of confidence in the Lord. And yet, unlike Psalm 121, Psalm 11 is not one of the so-called Psalms of Ascents, which were used by the Israelites as they journeyed to the temple in Jerusalem. No, in Psalm 11, the circumstances appear to be quite different. You see, David's not on pilgrimage, as far as we know, to the temple, of course. Instead, he seems to be responding to advice given by well-meaning advisors in the midst of a powerful threat against him and his kingdom. And I think David's response to this advice has a lot to teach us about how we should respond to the things that appear to be shaking the very foundations of our personal lives and our society at large. And so what are some of the things that we can learn from David in this psalm? Well, for starters, I think it's important that we grasp the logic, the structure, the flow of this psalm. It's got two stanzas, and the ESV nicely breaks it up for us. You'll see a space there between verse 3 and verse 4. And in most of the first stanza, beginning in the second half of verse 1, we see David recounting the advice he received from his advisors. His own response, however, to this advice is what actually begins the psalm in verse 1 and is later resumed and filled out in verses 4 to the end. And so what 
What's the advice that David was being given? We don't know the particular circumstances surrounding this psalm, but I think that a fitting episode in the life of David would be Absalom's rebellion that we read about in 2 Samuel 15 through 18. You might remember that in that narrative, King David's own son, Absalom, threatened his life and attempted a coup. He sent spies throughout the land, throughout the tribes of Israel, And he charged them to shout when they heard the trumpet, Absalom is king in Hebron. Additionally, David's own trusted advisor, Ahithophel, he sided with Absalom and betrayed David. And even Shimei, an ancestor of Saul, picked up stones and audaciously threw them at King David and cursed him to his face. This was a terrible time in the life of David. And it's not difficult to imagine that such familial strife, father and son pitted against one another, and societal anarchy could be seen as evidence that the foundations of Israelite society were being destroyed. And yet whatever the specific circumstances surrounding this psalm, it is clear that David was facing an immediate and dangerous threat. Notice what we read in verse 2. He says, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in in heart. Notice the imagery of the bent bow and the fitted arrow. David's enemies are already prepared to shoot. They're ready now to deliver a fatal blow, and David needs to act quickly. And notice, too, that they planned to shoot in the dark, which likely means that they were planning to attack from the shadows, from some hidden or obscure location. Interestingly, the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 9.3 that the treacherous bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. And so it could have been that the threat that David is experiencing here was a verbal one. Slander and cursing and lies hurled at him like arrows. And again, this would fit well with the verbal abuse we know David suffered during Absalom's rebellion. But again, whatever the specific threat, whether physical or verbal, in the midst of it, David's advisors counsel escape as the only solution. They say in verse 1, flee like a bird to the mountain. And you know, if we're honest, I think we'd say that there's a ring of wisdom in their counsel, wouldn't we? After all, faced with danger or with struggles, what do our instincts urge us to do? When we face relational conflict, What do do our instincts tell us to do? They urge us to flee. And we tell others to do the same. We advise our children especially to do this. Flee from danger. Fleeing seems the way of wisdom. And yet, David didn't seem to think this was wise advice at all. And his response to me is striking. Notice what he says at the beginning of the psalm. In the Lord... I take refuge. 
How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? It's as if he were saying, really? That's the best you can offer? To run in fear? Brothers, I'm not afraid, and I will not run. My hope is in the Lord. You know, I think David responded this way for a couple of reasons. On a practical level, we know that throughout the course of David's life, he'd experienced the futility of trying to escape the assaults of determined enemies. He might have even had in mind the particular time when Saul came after him at the wild goat's rock, which is recounted in 1 Samuel 23 through 26. After all, he commented on that episode in 1 Samuel 26, 20, saying that Saul, the king of Israel, had come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge a bird in the mountains. And so David probably recognized just from his own experience that the advice to run to the mountains, to try to find shelter in the mountains, could not in fact provide him with lasting sanctuary. In fact, they might actually lead him into greater danger, something that Penny brought out last week. But you know, more than this, I think David rejected his advisor's counsel because he recognized something even more fundamental. He recognized that what he needed, what they needed, was not to flee out of fear from the danger, but to bow before the Lord God Almighty, to rest in Him and in His will, and to find in Him an unshakable and unassailable place of refuge. You know, there's a particularly poignant scene in uh, that movie, uh, Forrest Gump, some of you might have seen. It's when, he, it's when Forrest, as a young boy, runs to meet his best friend, Jenny. And instead of finding her in her house, he spies her alone out in the field. And when her drunk and abusive father angrily steps out of the house, Looking for her, Jenny grabs Forrest's hand and runs deeper into the fields. And she begins to pray repeatedly, Dear God, make me a bird so I can fly far, far away from here. Dear God, make me a bird so I can fly far, far away from here. Friends, it's a moving scene if you haven't seen it. We sense the danger this little girl is facing. We sympathize with her desire to escape the clutches of this wicked man. Her desire to flee seems commonsensical to us. And yet, although the little girl does, in fact, manage to escape from her cruel father, as the film progresses, we watch her run headlong, year after year, into equally perilous dangers involving sexual promiscuity and drug abuse. Yes, she escaped the immediate danger posed by her father. But she doesn't know peace or rest. She doesn't find lasting sanctuary. And friends, in our fallen world, the void left by merely escaping from danger out of fear, without seeking a truly safe haven, 
will always be filled with another, perhaps even more insidious danger, and our relief will be incomplete and momentary. Brothers and sisters, David understood this. He recognized that the only sure solution to the danger he was facing lay in taking refuge in the Lord God Almighty. And I think the reason he understood this, the reason David could proclaim with confidence in the midst of this threat, in the Lord I take refuge, is because he had a clear and unshakable vision of who God is in all his power and righteousness. And it's a vision that's on full display in the second stanza. Notice what he says about God beginning in verse 4. He says that the Lord is in his holy temple and that he's enthroned in heaven. Here David gives us a twofold affirmation that God was both present with him in the midst of his present struggles. After all, the temple was the earthly dwelling place of the Lord. But also that God is the transcendent, supreme king of the universe and that his will and foundations of his kingdom, they cannot and will not be shaken. Friends, for David, this was a fundamental affirmation of the imminence and majestic sovereignty of the Lord. And it reminds me of what the prophet Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 2.20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You see, in the midst of this threat, David's advisors lost sight of who is truly running the universe. And as they looked around, they saw the foundations crumbling, and the only solution they could entertain was to run in fear. And David understood that what they needed most was a reality check. A reminder that God was with them, that he was powerful to save, and that his will would not be thwarted. And friends, isn't this what we need to hear as well? When we sense in whatever challenges we are facing that the foundations of our lives are being shaken, don't we need a picture of the Lord and his sovereignty? Notice also what uh, David says in the second half of verse 4 through verse 6. He says that the Lord sees and that he tests the children of man. Earlier in Psalm 10, 11, the psalmist said that those who lie in ambush to murder the innocent, they say in their hearts, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. But here, David affirms that the Lord sees all. And so he had complete confidence in the midst of his present struggles that those who had bent the bow and fitted the arrow to the string and prepared themselves to shoot at David in the dark, these people would not go unnoticed by the Lord. But I think more than that, David would have us recognize that the Lord, through his omniscient gaze, does not merely watch the world, but as the New American Standard translation puts it, he tests both the righteous and the wicked. 
And brothers and sisters, there's an important point for us to grasp here. You see, the word for testing was commonly used to describe the process of refining metals in a fiery furnace. And so I think the image David uses here of the Lord testing both the righteous and the wicked has a double meaning. On the one hand, it offers hope to the righteous of refinement at the loving hands of their heavenly Father. It reminds me of what Job said in Job 23.10. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Friends, the Lord's testing for those who have put their trust in him is a refining process. And yet, on the other hand, the Lord's testing holds out the certainty of fiery judgment for the wicked, for those who fail to bow the knee before him, for those who, in the midst of their sin, reject his overtures of grace and foolishly claim the right to rule their own lives. Friends, the Lord will bring judgment upon them, for he is a righteous God, and he hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And to underscore the certainty of this dreadful testing, in verse 6, David draws on language used in the, in the destruction of that ultimate symbol of wickedness, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. David calls on the Lord to judge his adversaries and all the wicked. And indeed, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But I want you to notice how David ends this psalm. He ends where he began. He ends with confidence, saying, The upright shall behold the Lord's face. Friends, what he's saying here is that the Lord is the only sure place of refuge in the midst of this cruel and fallen world. And not only that, he's saying to us that the Lord is an assured place of refuge for all those who put their trust in him alone rather than in, them, in themselves and in their own feeble attempts to escape the dangers and challenges we see all around us. You know, the Apostle John said in 1 John, in John 1.12, he said that the Lord has given to those who believe in the name of Jesus the right to become his children. And later in that glorious beatific vision he gives us in Revelation 22.4, he tells us that these same children, we who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus and no other, he says that we will see his face. As I think about these things, I'm reminded of what Charles Wesley penned in his beautiful hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Remember what he wrote in the first stanza? He said, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the near's wa near waters roll while the tempest still is high, hide me, O oh, my Savior, hide, 
till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven, guide. Oh, receive my soul at last. Friends, will you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever challenges you're facing or seeing on the horizon? Will you put your confidence in his inestimable power and in his abounding grace? Will you, like David, find in him a sure and lasting refuge? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words of David. We thank you for your work in the life of David that he could say with confidence that in the Lord he takes refuge. Oh, may it be true in our hearts and our lives as well. Use this psalm, Lord, to strengthen our faith in you. We ask all this in the precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.